for our sermon texts as we begin a new series on the parables of Jesus. We begin in Mark chapter 4 this morning. We're going to work our way roughly chronologically uh, through the parables, not 100% perfectly, but as close as we can to the order uh, that Jesus taught the parables. And this morning we begin in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, because in this parable, Jesus also includes uh, a key verse that says that this parable is the way that we are to understand the rest of the parables. And so this is our natural starting point. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the living God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, we ask that your spirit would work to make your word alive to our minds and hearts, to convict us of our sins, to give us a heart for your word and for others who do not know you, uh, to give us a mind that we may Uh, better understand your word and your parables, and better understand your kingdom and how your kingdom works. To the praise and glory and honor of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A phenomenon has been happening over the past few years of which you may not be aware. 
This phenomenon goes by two different words, deconversion or deconstruction. In deconversion, a person begins to question, doubt, and ultimately reject the Christian faith altogether. That's deconversion. In deconstruction, a person begins to question, doubt, and ultimately rejects foundational and fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. To put it bluntly, this phenomenon is using new language to describe what Scripture calls apostasy. There have been high-profile deconversion stories, those who once claimed the name of Christ but who now say they are no longer Christian, they identify as agnostic or atheist. Rhett and Link, Joshua Harris, who pastored a reformed megachurch in Maryland and was the author of the popular 90s book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. These are people who have walked completely away from the faith. Others have moved from being a so-called evangelical and have adopted more progressive ideas. They still identify as Christian, but now they are a progressive Christian. They say that you can be a gay Christian, and they advocate for LGBT, LGBTQIA++ causes. They reject scripture's teaching on gender, sexuality, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, and the list goes on and on of what they reject. Such high-profile instances include Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, Peter Enns, who once taught at Westminster Theological Seminary, and Rachel Held Evans. They promote a God of tolerance who is accepting of all types of people regardless of identity, orientation, or even religion. All paths ultimately lead to God. They deny the existence of hell. 2,000 years ago, Jesus actually talked about people like this when he told the parable of the soils found in our passage this morning. And this parable teaches us that the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel produces a variety of responses from people. The proclamation of the gospel produces a variety of responses from people. And so in verses 1 through 9, we have the parable itself, the parable of the soils. So great crowds gather around Jesus as he sits down to teach, and the crowd is so great that they push him out onto a boat. There's no room on the land for the teacher. So you can picture the scene in your head. Jesus is just offshore, sitting down in a boat. There's a huge throng of people standing along the beach, eager to hear what Jesus has to teach them. And he begins to teach them a parable. This parable is the story about a sower and about different soils that have seed scattered upon it. It's an agricultural story intended to drive home a spiritual truth. And it begins with the sower who goes out to sow some seed. And while the, the main focus of the parable is not on the sower, it's on the soils, I do want to pause here to focus on the sower briefly. I want us to notice two things about this sower. One, the sower is indiscriminate in his sowing. You know the rest of the parable and how the seed is sown on various types of soil, but that's of no concern to the one who is sowing the seed. The, the sower is scattering the seed broadly and indiscriminately. And as Jesus explains in the parable that the, the seed is the word of God, what we have here is the, the free offer of the gospel going out to all people indiscriminately. 
We, we looked at this recently in our series on the marrow of modern divinity, how the gospel is to be proclaimed to all types of people, not just people who are giving evidence of perhaps they are the elect of God, and then you can offer the gospel to them. He's scattering it indiscriminately. He hasn't gone out there to survey the soil in order to sow only among the good soil. I'm only going to preach to the good soil. No. Whenever I have my own yard seeded in the past, the person doing it has used a broadcast spreader, and the seed goes everywhere. And when I'm fertilizing the grass and trying to kill the weeds, I use a, a broadcast spreader. And so some of the fertilizer inevitably lands on the, the driveway, the, the sidewalk. Some lands out in the streets because I'm not all that good at it. And some lands on good soil where the grass is already growing. And, and then some lands in the dirt around the trees where I'm trying to get grass to grow. The farmer in this parable is doing the same thing. He's spreading widely. He's, he's being indiscriminate, but he's also being faithful. That's the second thing I want us to notice. It's a basic and elementary truth that you can't have a crop if you don't sow a seed. I know that blows your mind away, right? So profound. You can't have a crop if you don't sow the seed. So the sower wants to have a harvest. So he's doing the hard work that must be done in order for the crop to grow. He's being indiscriminate, and he's being faithful. I also want us to notice that the Lord God, when he teaches in parables, he has structured creation to be useful in explaining spiritual truths and the way that God works on a spiritual level. It's almost like it was intentional. How about that? The creator of the universe created and structured his creation in such a way that we can draw spiritual truths and lessons if we will but just observe and meditate and reflect using scripture as an aid or a guide. As we look at all of these parables, they're going to be taken either from creation or from human nature. There are parables that use cooking and food to teach spiritual truths about God and his kingdom. There are parables that use human nature when you find something valuable and want to keep it. This is part of what it means when scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Embedded in general revelation, embedded in nature, are visible illustrations that point to the ultimate reality of the way God is working in the world to bring about his purposes. Unfortunately, this is missed quite frequently in our modern day and age where people are more and more inside for their work, working in cubicle farms, glued to the computers. People are glued to their electronic gadgets. I no longer see kids playing outside, playing sports, riding their bikes in our neighborhood. They're at school and then they come home and they stay inside. They spend an entire day inside from the time they're in school to the time they come home to the time they go to bed. They are inside. There's no spending time outside. And so it's becoming more challenging for people as they spend more time inside and less time outside to understand and see and reflect upon the spiritual truths of general revelation that God has embedded into his creation. I remember one day in college, I was sitting out on the swing on the college green on a beautiful day, and I was just listening to the birds singing to their maker. 
And it reminded me, and I thought to myself, how much more do I need to be singing melodies to my maker? If even the birds praise their creator, how much more do I, created in the image of God, need to praise my creator? Sometimes our souls are dull to the things of God simply because we haven't taken the time to be outside in his creation, to be still, to listen and observe, and then reflect upon the spiritual truths that are revealed throughout God's creation, which bears his fingerprints. It bears his handprint. It is his handiwork. And so it reveals truths about him. And so Jesus, in his parables, is going to draw from agriculture and horticulture and, and human nature. He's going to draw from the way that's, that the world works to teach us about the way the kingdom of God works. Now we're going to get to the soils, uh, but let's skip down to verse 10. Verses 10 through 13, where we have the explanation for the parables. The explanation for the parables. Verse 10 indicates that Jesus is now in a private setting, uh, teaching his apostles, the twelve, as well as those who would be considered his disciples, those around him with the twelve. So Jesus may be teaching to 100, 200, 300 people. We don't know, but he's teaching them in private now. And Luke's account in Luke chapter 8 of the same parable says that the disciples asked Jesus what this particular parable meant. What does this parable mean? Uh, Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 13 of this same parable has the disciples asking Jesus why he speaks in parables. Mark simply says that they asked him about the parables. There's no contradiction in these accounts. Uh, they're asking him to explain uh, why do you teach in parables? What does this particular parable mean? And so here Jesus answers their questions. And so we have Jesus' own interpretation and his own explanation for speaking in parables. First, in verses 11 through 12, parables reveal the mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of God. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, it has been given to them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But for those outside... It is hidden to those who do not have ears to hear, who do not have eyes to see, to those who have not been regenerated and quickened by the Holy Spirit. Those outside, everything is in parables so that it remains veiled for them. These parables of Jesus are spiritual teachings, and, and Scripture teaches that the natural man cannot accept the things of God or even understand the things of God. Only the spiritual man can. That is, one who has received the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Only believers are truly able to understand Jesus' parables in which he teaches us about the kingdom of God. While unbelievers are left befuddled or perplexed or, or just without understanding. And he even quotes from the Old Testament that they may see, they saw Jesus teaching the parable, but not perceive they don't really see what's going on because they don't see Jesus as the Messiah of God. They may indeed hear, they heard the, the words of Jesus teaching the parable, but they didn't understand it. It didn't go to their hearts, to those who do not have ears to hear, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
This is actually a quote from Isaiah. And so Jesus' ministry, it parallels Isaiah's ministry, who was told to go to a people who were hard of heart and who were not going to listen and to respond to Isaiah in the same way that they were not going to listen and respond to the prophet Jeremiah. Spiritual blindness, on one hand, and spiritual understanding, on the other hand, is the general reason for Jesus' teaching in parables. But verse 13 gives us a reason that is tied specifically to this parable. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus implies in his two questions here that this parable is the key to understanding all the other parables. So what does this mean? What does this mean that this parable is the key to understanding all the parables? First, regarding the subject matter. All parables are about the kingdom of God in some manner. All parables are about the kingdom of God in some manner. Some are about the way God acts as the king of the kingdom. Some are about how one is able to enter into the kingdom of God. Some are about the way that the subjects of the kingdom are expected to act. And that expectation is set by the king himself. Some are about distinguishing between those who are truly in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom of God, despite what they may say. Some are about the way the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus says, if I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's already here in some fashion, while others are about the way the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. Jesus has not made all of his enemies his footstool yet. He has not come back a second time bringing with him judgment and vindicating us and glorifying our bodies and raising us to immortality and eternal glory with him. So the kingdom is here partially, but it hasn't been fully consummated yet. And so the parables talk about this tension, this already and not yet as well. And some are about how Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God with him, that it's centered around his person and his work. And so, so when you proclaim Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for sinners, you're proclaiming the kingdom of God, the very central focus of the kingdom of God. And so to you, Jesus says, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. All of the parables relate to the kingdom of God regarding the subject matter. Second, Jesus' explanation of this parable shows us how the other parables are intended to be interpreted. Jesus really only interprets two parables out of the 13, 14, 15 parables that he teaches. And, and actually the parables make up about a third of Jesus' teaching. So it's a significant portion of his teaching. And so this parable, which he interprets for us, shows us how the other parables that he does not interpret for us are intended to be interpreted. Craig Blomberg, an expert on uh, interpreting parables, uses the phrase, quote, limited allegory. Limited allegory to describe how we are to understand the parables. They are, they are to be interpreted in an allegorical manner, but not every detail of the parable necessarily means something. The, the church fathers uh, in the early church, they tried to make every single detail of a parable mean something. But, 
But some details in the parables of Jesus are included simply to make uh, the story more lifelike and more real, to add realism to the parable so that we understand what Jesus is talking about. Instead, what is to be interpreted allegorically are the main characters of the story, as well as the actions of the main characters of the story. So, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, we interpret the prodigal son, we interpret the father, we interpret the, the, the elderly brother who's angry. Those stand for something, they mean something, but the pigs eating the slop does not represent some spiritual truth. So it doesn't need to be interpreted allegorically. It's just a detail of the story to help move the parable along and to add realism to the parable. And so we interpret the main features of the parable, the, the, the characters and their actions. Jesus himself is going to interpret this parable for us where the different soils represent different responses to Jesus and the, the sower represents God's messenger and the seed represents the word of God. In other words, the main details are interpreted in an allegorical manner, but not some of the incidental details. Third thing about the parables, regarding knowledge. So the subject matter is the kingdom of God. Uh, the, this parable tells us how to interpret the, the other parables as limited allegories. And then third, regarding knowledge. All parables are given to Jesus' followers so that they may understand the king of the kingdom, the kingdom itself, and how the kingdom operates. In order for this understanding to lead to action. The knowledge is not just given to us to say, oh, wonderful, I understand this parable. It's actually a call to action. The parables, when rightly understood, call us to forgive others or to, to repent ourselves of our sin or, or to evangelize or to be encouraged or to give thanks. When Jesus teaches in parables and gives these parables, he does it so that we may rightly understand them, intellectual knowledge, in order to act rightly, heart knowledge, as well as to feel rightly, emotional knowledge. knowledge. These parables are calls for action. They call for a response. What they refuse to let us be is indifferent and to say to ourselves, well, isn't that a nice story? Isn't that a nice little fable? Oh, that's a nice little morality tale. Oh, okay, I'll... You know, I might take these morality tales and leave these morality tales. No. The parables teach us about the kingdom of God via limited allegory, which when rightly understood leads to action and response. They don't let us stay still. They demand something from us. And this brings us to verses 14 through 20, where we have the interpretation of this parable. Here Jesus tells us that there are four types of responses to the preaching of the word of God. When we evangelize, when we testify about the grace and the goodness of God and what he has done in our lives through Jesus Christ. The seed on the path where the ground is not plowed so the seed is exposed and never planted into the soil represents those whose hearts are hardened by Satan. Satan devours the word from their heart like the birds devour it on the path. I was driving the other day along Rennie Ford, and, and there was the hawk sitting there on the power line. And it's looking at the field, and it's scanning this field. It's looking for a little mouse or something that it can, 
that it can catch. So, so Satan is like the birds, and they're looking for when that seed is soil sowed, and so they swoop down immediately once they see the seed sown, and they devour it before it has a chance to take root. Satan devours the word from their heart like the birds devour it on the path so it doesn't sink in and affect that person's heart. In Jesus' day, this would have been the majority of Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, these people saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw people raised from the dead. And what did they do? They said he cast out demons by the work of Beelzebub. He's casting out Satan by the power and authority of Satan. They ascribed his, the works of God to Satan himself. There was no positive response at all, no, no glimmer of interest, only contempt and anger. There, there are people like this today. You try to tell them about Jesus, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, 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 I got it. I've got it all covered. I don't need to hear about Jesus. I, I'm a good person. Thanks, but I'm not really interested. So there's people who are indifferent. And then there's people who just get violently angry when you try to share Jesus with them. I don't want to have anything to do with your God. Get away from me, hypocritical Christians. There's people who are filled with anger at Jesus, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees were. Some people hear the good news, whether in a corporate church setting or through personal evangelism, and, and they are either indifferent or they become angry. People think they're fine and are good enough and don't need Jesus. But that didn't stop the sower from sowing the seed. Some seed lands on rocky ground where there is a, a bedrock right beneath the soil, probably of limestone in Jesus' day, that does not let the seed really take deep root. It, it blocks it. This seed, Jesus says, represents those who hear the word of God, and they seem to accept it to some degree. Look at verse 16. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately receive it with joy. Oh, this is promising. This is an encouraging response. And yet, because there is no depth. Verse 17, they have no root in themselves, just like they haven't been able to grow root because of that limestone bedrock. They endure for a while. They, they go to church for a little bit. They may read, they may pray for a little bit. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. They stop listening to and accepting the word of God. If this is what being a Christian means, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to have to take up my cross and follow after him daily. I don't want to have to die to myself and deny myself and follow after him. I don't want to be a disciple of Christ if it means suffering and death and the scorn of this world. I don't want that. This is not what I signed up for. The word for fall away here is where we get our English word scandal. The cross, suffering as the way to glory, humility as the way to be exalted, is a scandal to people. 
It refers to a, a snare or bait or trap or lure. In the Old Testament, it's called a stumbling block. True, costly discipleship, costly grace is a stumbling block to these people who receive the word with joy. Hey, Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. Oh, but it requires that I live my life for him and endure all this hard stuff. Nah, nope, nope. Not for me. In Jesus' day, this would be those who at some point were called his disciples and followed after him, yet because of Jesus' difficult teaching on election in John 6, as well as teaching that those who follow after him will suffer and be killed, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed after him. These are people who live in the here and now rather than living in the light of eternity. That's what Ben talked about in Sunday school this morning. The resurrection focuses us on the blessed hope that is to come, not on this life. When Jesus calls them to suffer for his sake, they stop following him. R.T. France says this, quote, Their enthusiasm is based on external stimulus, not on inner conviction. And so it will not last when the external is no longer there. Persecution and suffering shatters their bubble. They're willing to follow Jesus while it's easy, but not when it's tough. These people let themselves be snared and lured away into sin because of persecution. The snare of the easy life, the snare of cheap discipleship, the snare of not enduring for the sake of Christ, the snare of being popular with the world and accepted by the world causes them to scandalize and fall away. Those cases of deconversion or deconstruction that I mentioned earlier, they would fall into this camp. It's not a popular message today to say that marriage is only between one man and one woman for life, instituted by God himself. It is not popular today to say that a man is born a man and a woman is born a woman. It's going to get the scorn and the ridicule and the mocking of the world. And that's not what people want. We want to be naturally in our, in our fallen flesh we want to be accepted by others. And so these people have compromised the truth. They've, they've said, you know, friendship with the world is better than friendship with Christ. I can't help but also think of many churches today that only offer self-help messages and how to be a better you with nothing about sin and sanctification and and endurance, nothing about perseverance, nothing about the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. It's all about what Christ can do for you to help you to enjoy this life now, your best life now. It's one thing I love about this congregation. I know you come for the word. Even when I preach it poorly, I know that you are here for the preaching and teaching of God's word, which is able to save your souls and cause you to grow. We have no frills. We have no thrills. We have no smells and bells. But we do have the pure and unadulterated milk and meat of God's word. And that is so much better than any temporary emotional high or laser light show or stage with rock musicians. A third seed fell among thorns. 
The thorns grew up alongside the plant and choked out all of the nutrients so that the plant could not bear fruit. Verses 18 and 19, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, three different things which may all be happening at the same time or it may just be one of these three things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. They are choked out. The word of God is choked out of their heart by the thorns of this world. Jesus probably would have had Judas in mind, who in the end betrayed Jesus because he felt Jesus had betrayed Israel's nationalistic cause to to overthrow Roman rule. Grant Osborne writes of this seed, quote, their true priorities are their bank account and status in the community, and so the pleasures of life will ultimately seduce them away from God, end quote. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. There's only one slot for the number one priority in your life. And today, one prominent problem seems to be sports, especially travel ball and those sports that are played on Sundays. Parents will drive their children all over kingdom come, four hours away, to play in various types of travel ball and sports, but they will not set aside Sunday to drive their children 15 to 20 minutes to go to church. The cares of this world. Our actions are very revealing of our priorities, ladies and gentlemen. Calvin says, quote, Each of us ought to endeavor to tear the thorns out of his heart if we do not wish that the word of God should be choked. For there is not one of us whose heart is not filled with a vast quantity, indeed a thick forest of thorns, end quote. This third soil doesn't fight to cut back the brush and the weeds that are in his heart, but rather he lets them alone and he lets them grow, and God's word ends up being choked out. This happened in the church. Paul writes of, of Demas, who went out from us because he loved the world. They went out from us because they were not of us. People leave the church because they're drawn and enticed by the things of this world. They don't care about the things of the world to come. They don't care about spiritual truths and realities. They just want to focus on this life. And they want to have it all. And they desire things more than they desire the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know... Scripture doesn't say how long this goes on. For some people, that first soil, they reject it immediately. For other people, they receive it immediately. And they may receive it for a few months. They may receive it for years to come before finally revealing that they were not truly saved. Judas went all the way to the end of his life before he revealed that he was not truly one of the apostles. He had everybody fooled for his entire life. And then Jesus says that there are going to be some where it's not going to be revealed until after death. They'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he'll say, what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And people went through their whole life thinking that person was right with God. But in the end, the Lord Jesus reveals what was truly in their heart. 
some people may deceive us for a short time, some people may deceive us for a very long time, even all the way through the very entirety of their life. And all of these soils end up not bearing fruit. They are of the same category describing unbelievers and the various ways that unbelievers can react to the message of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Blomberg says this, quote, Many will respond to God's word with less than saving faith. End quote. Some have no positive response at all. Some have a temporary and superficial response. Some seem to have a genuine interest, but they don't like the costly demands of following Christ. They reject both the message and the response that the message requires because their hearts have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They've not had the gift of saving faith given to them. Nevertheless, they are also responsible for their unbelieving response and the lack of commitment to Jesus Christ. The problem is not with the seed. The same seed that was sown on the path is the same seed that lands in the good soil and bears 30 and 60 and 100 fold. The problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the soil. And this parallels nicely with what Jesus said earlier. The problem, the, just as the meaning of the parable was hidden from those who do not have faith, so the seed of the word of God is kept from those who are perishing because the Holy Spirit has not gone first to make the soil of the heart good soil. If we were to end there, it would, we would be in nothing but despair. But thanks be to God, there's a fourth type of soil. There's a good soil with ample nutrients and depth so that the planted seed of God's word bears fruit to varying degrees, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. The same seed that caused others to ultimately reject Christ is the same seed that also bears fruit. As, as Spurgeon puts it, the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. This is talking about those who are followers of Christ, who have true saving faith in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to aid them in the fight against the cares and the anxieties of this world, to preserve us when we walk through suffering and persecution. We go through the same types of suffering and persecution we have. We're drawn to the same cares for riches and the things of this world that unbelievers are. And yet we have the help of God himself to fight against those and to battle against those and to let the word of God uproot those thorns and pierce beyond the limestone bedrock. This soil, God has been tilling the heart and breaking up the hardness so the word of God can be implanted in them and save their soul. God has been doing the invisible and supernatural work by his spirit so that when the seed comes, the spirit takes that seed and plants them into the soil, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, unites them to Christ by faith. They are rooted in him and those roots go down deep. And they drink of the nutrients of Christ, who gives us the living water, who gives us himself as the bread from heaven, who nourishes us. So the only legitimate response to God's word is the obedience and perseverance that demonstrates true regeneration. 
that one indeed has true saving faith. The one who perseveres to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. These people stopped short of the finish line, the first three soils. One didn't even get in the race. Matthew Henry describes it like this, quote, a course of life agreeable to the gospel. Christian graces daily exercised, Christian duties duly performed. This is the life of the good soil that bears fruit. D.A. Carson says, quote, The parable of the soils not only says that the kingdom advances slowly and with varied responses to the proclamation of that kingdom, but it also implicitly challenges hearers to ask themselves what kinds of soil they are. End quote. So I simply ask you here this morning, what is your response to the good news of Jesus Christ? Are you here today or listening on the internet because life is good? What would you do if your livelihood or your life was put in danger because of Christ? Would you never darken the doors of church again? Would you stop reading the Bible and praying? Would you walk away in anger at God because the life of ease and satisfaction has vanished? Many people did just that over the past two years with the COVID pandemic. As difficult as it was and as Harmful as it has been psychologically and mentally and emotionally and even physically, it's also revealed the heart priorities of many people who have walked away from the church. What kind of soil are you? Do you understand this parable? Will you respond with the only response, which is that entrance into the kingdom of God is only by saving faith from a heart where the Holy Spirit has already done the work of regeneration. Will you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his word, which is able to save your soul? And flowing out of that, will you seek to bear fruit for God? Growing in maturity, growing in sanctification, letting him prune you that you may bear bigger and better fruit. And telling others about Christ and not being shocked or taking it personally when you have these first three responses. But rejoicing when there is the response of the fourth soil. Amen and amen.